Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces to fight against Israel. Achish said to David, You must understand that you and your men will accompany me in the army. And David said, Then you will see for yourself what your servant can do. Achish replied, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Now Samuel was dead. And all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in his hometown of Ramah. Saul had expelled the mediums and spiritists from the land. The Philistines assembled and came and set up camp at Shunem, while Saul gathered all the Israelites and set up camp at Gilboa. When Saul saw the Philistine army, he was afraid. Terror filled his heart. He inquired of the Lord, but the Lord did not answer him by dreams or Urim or prophets. Saul then said to his attendants, Find me a woman who is a medium, so that I may go and inquire of her. There's one in Endor, they said. So Saul disguised himself. Putting on other clothes, and at night he and two men went to the woman. Consult a spirit for me, he said, and bring up for me the one I name. And the woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done. He's cut off the mediums and spiritists from the land. Why have you set a trap for my life to bring about my death? Saul swore to her by the Lord, As surely as the Lord lives, You will not be punished for this. Then the woman asked, Whom shall I bring up for you? Bring up Samuel, he said. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out at the top of her voice and said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, Don't be afraid. What do you see? The woman said, I see a spirit coming up out of the ground. What does he look like, he asked. An old man wearing a robe is coming up, she said. Then Saul knew it was Samuel. And he bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. Samuel said to Paul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? I'm in great distress, Saul said. The Philistines are fighting against me, and God has turned away from me. He no longer answers me either by prophets or by dreams. So I have called on you to tell me what to do. Samuel said, Why do you consult me now that the Lord has turned away from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done what he predicted through me. The Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hands and given it to one of your neighbours, to David. Because you did not obey the Lord or carry out his fierce wrath against the Amalekites, the Lord has done this to you today. The Lord will hand over both Israel and you to the Philistines. And tomorrow, you and your sons 
will be with me. The Lord will also hand over the army of Israel to the Philistines. Immediately Saul fell full length on the ground, filled with fear because of Samuel's words. His strength was gone, for he'd eaten nothing all that day and night. And when the woman came to Saul and saw that he was greatly shaken, she said, look, your servant has obeyed you. I took my life in your hands and did what you told me to do now. Please listen to your servant and let me give you some food that you may eat and have the strength to go on your way. He refused and said, I will not eat. But his men joined the woman in urging him and he listened to them. He got up from the ground and sat on the couch. The woman had a fattened calf at the house, which she slaughtered at once. She took some flour, kneaded it and baked bread without yeast. And then she set it before Saul and his men, and they ate. And that night, same night, they got up and left. Peter, thank you very much, and let me add my welcome to Ben. It's good to have you with us here this morning. Do keep your Bibles open at that reading, page 300 in the church Bibles, if you close them. And let's pray for God's help as we look now at his word together. Father, as we come to this dark and difficult and desperate part of your word, we pray that you would help us to engage with it, to understand what it shows us about the world and about ourselves, and also would you help us to see once again the glorious beauty and light of the Lord Jesus who rescues us from all hopelessness. In Jesus' name, amen. We live in a world that has a problem with hope. Perhaps we feel it personally. We feel as if our own lives are hopeless uh, hopelessness can come at us in all kinds of directions, whether it's uh, health issues or worries about finances, strained relationships, loneliness, uh, perhaps just boredom with the ongoing routines of life. Or perhaps we feel the hopelessness of other people. Uh, we've been seeing on the news, haven't we, over the last few months, desperate pictures of desperate people trying to get across the Mediterranean on flimsy little boats and rafts because they have no hope from where they've come from and they are longing for hope somewhere else. And as we look at these thousands of people facing death and danger, well, it's overwhelming, isn't it? How do we, we respond to that kind of hopelessness? Where do we even begin? We live in a world that has a problem with hope. There is another way to have a problem with hope, which is more subtle. It's the other way. We are hopeful, but in the wrong things. So sitting here this morning, we might have come today feeling relatively relaxed and good about life. Maybe we feel that life is heading in the right kind of direction. We feel good about life. But are we building our hopes and our confidence on things that will last also in the news recently has been uh, Greece and the unfolding economic crisis in, in Greece. We know it well. 
a country facing financial meltdown, possibly even the EU, we don't know. But the thing about Greece is it wasn't always that way. If you go back 10 years, the money was flowing in. People were buying big cars, big houses. Life felt good. But it hasn't lasted. Hope in the wrong thing can be fleeting and fickle. And so we live in a world that has a problem with hope. This morning, in our reading from 1 Samuel 28, we see two men who have problems with hope. But these two men are facing, uh, well, both of them are facing seemingly impossible circumstances. And yet, as we watch both stories unfold, we see two very different outcomes. An outcome of utter hopelessness and an outcome of utter hope. And as we watch these two men and see their stories and understand how hope works in their lives, we are helped to see what is truly hopeless in our world and where we can truly find hope. David is our first man facing a hopeless situation. Last week we saw him make a series of rather dubious decisions as he left Israel and headed down to the Philistines. And yet amazingly, he survived amongst the enemies. In fact, he received land and he set up shop and things seemed to be going well for David. But then we come to verse one of our reading this morning. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces to fight against Israel. Achish said to David, you must understand that you and your men will accompany me in the army. Now, this is a problem. You see, if if David goes with Achish and fights with the Philistines against Israel, well, then how will he ever become king of Israel? Surely that step would be a step away from him ever being that king. But if David says no to Achish and and he won't fight the Israelites, well, then his cover will be blown in the foreign land and his own personal fate will be in great jeopardy. He may well die. And so we find in verse one, that David is facing what seems to be a hopeless position. His reply in verse two is wonderfully vague. David said, then you will see for yourself what your servant can do. And you can imagine him whispering to his men, and I have no idea what that is. It's a cop-out. As the reader were left wondering, well, David, what are you gonna do? It seems that his schemes and plans have caught up with him. So what will happen to David? Facing what seems to be, from a human point of view, a hopeless position. We should be on the edge of our seats. Here is David, the Christ, the Messiah, the one who's come to rescue his people, and he's facing this crisis. But the camera zooms away from David and goes somewhere else. The camera will now turn to Saul. It's not, kind of strictly speaking, a chronological move. What's happened to David happens a few days before what happens now to Saul, in the rest of chapter 28, but, but, the, but the author seems to want us to, to read the story of David alongside the story of Saul. The two are interwoven together, and we're meant to understand the two men together at the same time, and so the camera frustratingly moves from David now to Saul. And as we move to Saul, we too see a man facing hopelessness. Verse four, the Philistines have come to attack And it seems this time, it's not just a skirmish, but a major offensive. 
Now, Saul, he, he was a man who in the past had been very good at fighting. He was a big man. And you think he could have been able to cope with this threat, but no, he couldn't. He, verse five, was filled with fear and dread. Something about the, the context, something about the size of the Philistine army meant that David was undone. He sensed this could be his end. His best general, David, has gone and swapped sides, perhaps fighting for the enemy he didn't know yet. And if Israel loses this battle, there's a very good chance that king, Saul, would be killed. And so, humanly speaking, Saul is facing a hopeless situation. Saul's only hope, it would seem, lies with the Lord. But, verse 6 He inquired of the Lord, but the Lord did not answer him by dreams or Urim or prophets. Saul gets nothing, just silence from the Lord. No reassurance, no directions, no tips. And so with the Philistine army amassing across the valley and Saul petrified, his position is hopeless. What does he do? Uh, This time the camera stays with Saul. It doesn't flick back to David. And as the camera runs, we see Saul cross a major spiritual boundary as he turns to send his men off to find a medium. Elsewhere in scripture, it's very clear that God's people are to have nothing to do with mediums. So for example, Leviticus 19 verse 31 Do not turn to mediums or to seek out spiritists, for you will be defiled by them. Or Leviticus 20, verse 6, I will set my face against anyone who turns to mediums and spiritists to prostitute themselves by following them, and I will cut them off from their people. You see, the Bible does not deny the existence, the reality of mediums and spiritists in this world, nor does the Bible deny the reality of dark spiritual forces. But the Bible does say consistently, have nothing to do with them. And Saul knew this. That's why I think back in verse 3 in 1 Samuel 28, he bans, rightly, the, the mediums and spiritists from the land. Word had gone out, and this was a good thing to do. But now here we see Saul, desperate, doing a serious spiritual U-turn against the Lord, against God's ways, as he turns to this banned source of help, the mediums. Saul's men head off and they find a medium, surprisingly easily in fact. And so Saul goes off at night disguised. And the purpose of his trip becomes clear, verse 11. Then the woman, the the medium, asked, whom shall I bring up for you? Bring up Samuel. Saul said. He's come to see Samuel one last time, face to face, to find out what he should do. And then something happens. Somewhere between verse 11 and verse 12, we don't quite know what happens or how or why, Samuel appears. It's not clear from the text what role the medium had in bringing Samuel back up from the dead. Her surprise in verse 12 could be because she never actually brought someone up from the dead before. Or it could be that in that moment she recognized who Saul was and she was petrified for her own life. We don't know. 
It could be that uh, she was able to access dark powers that caused Saul, uh, Samuel to come back to life, or it could be that, that the Lord himself caused this moment to occur. Again, we don't know. Certainly elsewhere in Scripture, thinking of uh, the New Testament, Moses and Elijah did appear with Jesus when he was transfigured. This could be a similar kind of occasion. But I think the lack of detail here would caution us from trying to overread the exact uh, sequence of events. Either way, what is clear is that Saul finds himself face to face with Samuel. Verse 15, Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? And then what follows is, I think, one of the saddest verses that I've come across in Scripture. I am in great distress, said Saul. The Philistines are fighting against me, and God is turned away from me. He no longer answers me, either by prophet or by dreams. So I have called on you to tell me what to do. There is nothing more hopeless in life than to be confronted by your own personal death and to know that you have turned away from God and that God has turned away from you. And yet that is what Saul finds himself facing. I had the privilege over the last 10 days or so to take two funerals of two fine Christian people who died believing in the Lord. And yes, it is sad. It is hard to say goodbye. There is real separation. And yet, there was also joy because there is hope beyond the grave. We've heard today about Warren and Alex also who have died in the Lord. Sad desperately, but there is hope But Saul here, as he faces his own death, sees something different. For he knows that he is turned away from God, and God is turned away from him. And it is scary. It is truly hopeless. Samuel has no comfort for Saul. The the dead Samuel simply underlines what the alive Samuel had already said to Saul before he died. Saul has disobeyed God's word. Saul has turned away from God, and so, verse 16, God has turned away from Saul, and God will give the kingdom to David, verse 17. The only fresh piece of news that uh, Saul receives concerning his own future is that he will die tomorrow. And so, verse 20, immediately Saul fell full length on the ground, filled with fear, Because of Samuel's words, his strength was gone, for he had eaten nothing all that day and night. Here is the king of Israel, the king that the people wanted and asked for and called on God for. Here is that king. He is now quivering and shaking on the floor. The medium cooks him a meal, a meal fit for the king, but he is a king only in name now. He can barely help himself, and finally his men get him up and out, and he leaves again still at night, knowing that that will be his last night, for he dies the next day. 
I don't know if you've ever seen one of those uh, kind of before and after pictures. Um, I'm thinking particularly of uh, in the world of dieting. Imagine someone who's a little bit overweight and there's a before picture of them a little bit overweight. And then they, they find this uh, remarkable diet which uh, transforms them over you know, 10 easy weeks. And then there's the after picture of them kind of toned and sleek and slim. And, and we're meant to go, wow, the, the, the dieting program really works. Amazing. The before and after, that's how it works. Well, as we look at the whole sweep of the story of Saul, we are being shown the before and after picture. But this time, the product on offer is rejection of God's word and a life lived in self-reliance. How did Saul start out, the before picture? He started out as a tall, impressive man. He was a, a head taller than any other person in Israel. A mighty man, a man people looked up to. The kind of man you want is your king. What is the after picture? He is a man at the end of his life, quivering and full of fear, utterly hopeless and unable to lead the people. So is a picture of what happens when a person lives a life in defiance of God's word. Saul was the king of Israel, the man the people should follow. And here is the kind of leadership Saul provides. A leadership which takes people away from God, away from hope, and into despair and destruction. And that's our first application this morning. True hopelessness is found in following the example of Saul, of letting Saul be our leader and we might think, well, how could that possibly happen? You know, who would follow Saul when he's this kind of leader? Yeah, imagine Saul, um, if he was around last month with the, um, the uh, elections, with um, various people pitching to be leaders and prime ministers. Imagine Saul giving his manifesto on the uh, live debates and he would stand up and say this, follow me and I will bring you hopelessness and despair. I will turn strong men into weak men. I will make brave men scared under my leadership. <laughs> he would follow that kind of leader. And yet, so many people today follow the way of Saul, heading down a path towards utter hopelessness. Now, I do need to say a word about mediums and spiritists and the occult and Ouija boards and the like. They are around, and they do exist. Uh, for example, there's a spiritist church within a five-minute drive of this building here today. You can be there in moments. And on their website, I was reading this this week, they say this, Sunday divine services include healing prayers, spirit-inspired philosophy, and a demonstration of mediumship with a voluntary donation at the end. And if that is not enough for you, apparently, I go on to quote, uh, special evenings of mediumship are held about once a month. And this is where a well-qualified medium gives at least a full hour's demonstration of mediumship. If we have got ourselves involved in any way in this kind of stuff, can I say to you this morning, don't. Get away. Step back. You see, there are real and dark forces in the world, but they can bring nothing but despair and discouragement and hopelessness. 
And so don't mess around with them. If we are parents or or grandparents looking after younger ones, teach them that these things are not fun or intriguing or things to mess around with. They are dark and dangerous. Saul tried it, and it only took him further and further away from God into despair. My guess is, though, that this morning most of us, if we're tempted to follow in the footsteps of Saul, won't be tempted by that particular decision. But there's a principle that Saul shows us, which we do well to notice and be wary of. Perhaps it means playing loose and fast with God's word, picking and choosing when we want to believe it and live by it. That's what Saul was doing. One moment, banning the mediums. The next moment, turning to a medium. There's a very dangerous course of action to be someone like Saul, picking and choosing when we listen to God's word. This week in the news, a certain Church of England bishop, who I won't mention, announced to the media that he thought the Church of England's teaching that marriage is only between a man and a woman is, and I quote, a lousy definition. That sounds a lot like picking and choosing to me since the Bible is very clear on the definition of marriage. Uh, Perhaps we think that being a Christian is for the good times, when life is working well, but when things don't go quite as well, when hard times come and we feel hopeless, then we would do well to turn somewhere else apart from God because God can't really come through for us in those deep and dark moments. And so in a crisis we turn where? Perhaps to our bank accounts or our brains or our barn conversions. Uh, I I did some research this week. I I asked Google what I should do when I'm hopeless. And I was told this. Uh, One person recommended eating chocolate. Uh, Others said, take a hot bath and you'll feel better. Uh, Another one said, be active and do some exercise. Another person said, try dreaming a a different dream and you'll find hope then. Uh, Someone said, try falling in love. See, there's lots of different strategies for dealing with hopelessness. Some sort of mundane and silly, others serious and sustained. But Saul's strategy, which is to abandon the Lord and try his own way, is a serious and dangerous strategy. I think perhaps most crucially, Saul was a man who did not really love the Lord. You see, Saul was a man who feared his future, yes, but fear is not the same as actual repentance, And so it seems that Saul's desire to consult with God was not so much out of a love for him and a desire to be reconciled to him, but rather a desire to not die the next day. And I wonder sometimes if we turn to God when life is difficult, perhaps we're fearful, wanting a fix to the problem we have, but we don't actually want to repent and trust in the Lord as our our first love. And Saul would show us the danger of, of living that kind of way with regard to the Lord. Well, perhaps we're here this morning and we think, look, I hear what you're saying and, you know, and I get it, it's serious, but, but actually my, my life feels okay at the moment. It doesn't feel hopeless. It doesn't feel like being loose and fast with God's word matters. I'm, I'm kind of getting away with it. I, I hear what you're saying. But look at the example of Saul and the, and the before and the after. A strong and impressive man ending up a man who quivered and quaked with fear. 
So there is the example of Saul, a man who shows us how to live a truly hopeless life. But before we finish, what about David? Remember David? We left him on a cliff edge, faced with what seemed to be also an impossible situation. What about David? Well, actually, his future is a future unlike Saul. His future is a future of hope. How do we know that? There's one little verse buried in chapter 28 which tells us why. Look at verse 17. As Samuel speaks to Saul, he says, The Lord has done what he predicted through me. The Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hands and given it to one of your neighbors, to David. Now, this is massive because we know that at this point in time, David's almost going over the edge. He is up against it. It looks like he might become undone. And yet the word of God says, no, he will become king. Not because David's circumstances were easy and they weren't. And not because David had a squeaky clean moral record because that certainly was not the case. Look at chapter 27. Now the reason why Samuel is so confident that David will become king despite the circumstances is because God had made a promise and he knew God would keep his promise to David. That is the difference between David and Saul at this point in time. I don't say this in some kind of trite, simplistic way. We see in David the key, that, the key of trusting in God, even when it's difficult. God may have made promises to us, but at times it can be dreadfully hard to cling on to those promises. Uh, think of David. His circumstances were screaming out to him, God has left you. God has forgotten about you. God won't get you out of this particular circumstance. Or perhaps his conscience is, is plaguing him. David, you've messed up. You've turned away. You didn't trust as he should. You're not good enough for God. His promises won't work for you. Trusting in God is not easy. We see that in David's life. And yet here in the middle of the murk and, and the darkness and the, the, the messed upness of life, we see God has kept his promise. David will become king. And here we see the true source of hope in this world, God and his promises. As we think about Saul and the kind of leader he was, we are bound to look for a better leader, aren't we? A different leader. A leader who doesn't take us away from God, but rather brings us to God. A leader who doesn't leave us cut off from God, but rather close to God. And of course, as we look forward to the New Testament, we find that there was just a leader, the Lord Jesus. He didn't take us away from God, but he looked after us like a good shepherd, bringing us to God. And as this other leader hung dying on a cross, do you know what he cried out? He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, this other leader was willing to be cut off from God the very thing we deserve, so that we would not be cut off ourselves and that we would be brought close to God. How does the Apostle Paul put it? Remember Ephesians 2, those famous words? He says, 
Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You see, Jesus is the leader that we need. He doesn't take us away from God. He brings us close to God. It is through his blood, his death on the cross, his willingness to go there for us, which means that he loves us now in the present, that he cares about us now in the present, and that one day he will keep us safe through that moment when we face our own personal death because there is life beyond death for he has made a way through death to be with God forever. We live in a world that has a problem with hope. In the Lord Jesus, we have a hope that will never perish or fail. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you understand our weakness and our limitations. You know that we often wobble in our faith and we do things that we shouldn't as Christians. Father, we thank you that even though we don't deserve your love, you have chosen to love us and to care for us. We thank you that your promise of forgiveness and restoration and of eternal life is true in your son, Jesus Christ. Please keep us trusting in him, no matter what our circumstances, no matter what fears we feel. And please keep us until that final day when we stand before the throne with our wonderful savior, close to you and with you forever. Amen.